0: I would like to begin by thanking personally Dr. Step for this invitation. It's an honor to be here. But I noticed that he's not here, so I can't thank him. He tells me he loves me and uh, that he enjoys hearing me, but when I preach, he's nowhere to be found. So I don't know what quite to make of that. Now, I look out over this room, and if you've never seen it from up here, let me tell you, this is a big room. But as I look out over this room, I see a lot of faces, and I would presume that of you, the overwhelming majority are believers in Jesus Christ. I'm not naive enough to think everybody here trusts Jesus yet, but most of you do. Your faith is settled. It's been signed and sealed and delivered. You know who you are in Christ. You know who He is and what He's done for you. You belong to Him, and you know it, and I'm glad for you. There's something else you know as well, and that is that as you go out of this building today, go out these doors, the exits, you're entering into a world where you are the minority. In these walls, you're the majority, but outside you're in the minority. Most folks don't belong to Jesus in the world. Most folks don't claim to belong to Jesus. Most folks don't understand what it means to belong to Jesus, and this is the world in which we live. Now, let's give it to them. Most of the non-believing world really doesn't bother us. They don't accost us. They see what we believe, most of it anyway, and see it as harmless, nothing to be all upset about. They let us go our merry way. In fact, you know, we may in the public square uh, discuss things like Adam and Eve or creation. Noah and the ark, you know, Samson, Daniel and the lion's den, and and all these great Old Testament stories. And we don't upset people with those things. They They either ignore it or they just stare back in silence or they chuckle. thinking, well, isn't that sweet? Those Christians, they believe what Christians believe, and that's not a threat to anybody else. You can even cross over into the New Testament. And the world out there would generally accept us talking about our faith in Jesus, the first Christmas, the, the angels, the shepherds, the wise men, that doesn't really bother anybody out there. And you talk about Jesus' miracles, walking on the water, calming the storm, and even raising the dead. They might look at it sideways on that one, but by and large, the stories from the Old Testament and the stories from the New Testament don't really bother people who are outside of the faith. But you must know that there are some things that are component parts to our faith, that are very challenging to those outside of these walls and very upsetting to them. Some aspects of our faith offend many people. It generates pushback. You've heard the pushback. Some of the things that we say and that we claim in the name of Jesus do not go unanswered by those who are out in the public arena who do not yet belong to Him. They don't want to hear what we have to say on some subjects because they can't tolerate it. And the reason is because it is in violation of the core value of our age, and that is tolerance. Tolerance and inclusiveness. Some Christians even become queasy about some of the things that we preach and teach in our churches. Did you know that? Some people who are blood-bought and born-again followers of Jesus Christ still shy away from some of the precepts and principles that we find in the New Testament. It's just a little bit too uncomfortable. Some people are even embarrassed at times over what they read in the Scripture that they say they believe. There's one biblical teaching that, as far as I'm concerned, is the granddaddy of them all when it comes to teachings or doctrines that the world simply cannot tolerate. This world that lives and dies by tolerance cannot tolerate Some of our doctrines. And the one I wish to bring to your attention today is introduced to us in the book of Acts. I would like for you to open your Bibles, please, with me to Acts chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 8 through 12. If you don't have a Bible, I believe the verses will be on the screen for you to see. Peter and John, in the days of the early church, had been walking near the temple one day, and they saw a man who needed the compassionate healing of Jesus Christ. And so they let loose the power of Jesus on him, and he was healed. And uh, that's a good thing. But a crowd collected, and not long after that, a ruckus ensued, and Peter began to preach, and people got more upset, and Peter and John were arrested. As they were hauled in before the authorities, in fact, before the high priest, who was the, the head of all the religious authority and religious police in Jerusalem, in front of the high priest, Peter made a statement that I'm going to read. Acts chapter 4 verses 8 through 12 Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, "Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health." He is a stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. Are you ready? Verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Certainly you called it, as I pointed out to you, verse 12, the offending doctrine. Doctrine. It's right there at the end of the passage, almost put in as an afterthought. Oh, and he also, Peter also said this, but this claim, this statement was jaw-dropping. You've heard it. You've heard it maybe dozens or hundreds or thousands of times. Maybe you've even told this to someone else as you shared your faith. But I can tell you to be in the presence of the high priest in Jerusalem and to look him in the eye and to say, there is no other name given by which we must be saved in the name of Jesus Christ, this was a huge leap that Peter was making. Peter, who very recently had denied that he even knew Jesus Christ in the first place. The doctrine is called in the ivory tower, the ivy-covered hallways of academia, the doctrine of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. The exclusivity of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means simply this. There is no way to God. There's no way to heaven. There's no way to salvation. There's no way to be made right with God. No way to find and have and enjoy eternal life. Except that you go there in and through Jesus Christ and Him alone. Of everything we believe, this one is the one that infuriates the doubters and the dissenters more than anything else. This is the most upsetting thing. It's the most offensive to our culture. This is where the world wants us to back down and back off of what we're saying because they don't like it. All the Adam and Eve and David and Goliath and Jesus and, and the crucifixion, the resurrection, all that, that's sort of our internal shop talk. That's us dealing with us. But when we begin to say that Jesus is the only way to heaven, then we are, in their view, encroaching into territory where we ought not to go. You think of these component parts of the lost society in which we live. First, I think of atheists. Well, atheists don't believe there's a God in the first place. There's no God to know. There's no heaven to go to. So nobody goes. So uh, they would obviously reject this. On the other end of the extreme, you have atheists here. You have universalists down here. Now, universalism. They say, well, there is a God. Maybe with a little g, maybe with a capital G, maybe the God of the Bible, maybe another, maybe more than one. The universalist says no matter how many gods there are, there is some kind of heaven, some kind of good to receive someday as an inheritance. And by the way, everybody goes there. Everybody gets it. No matter who you are, what you believe, the universalist says you've got it. Then you have those who are what I would call the world religionists. The world religionists, these who adhere to these world religious systems that don't, don't need naming, actually, at this point. You know what they are. So I'm going to leave for my friend and, and your pastor, Dr. Estep, to deal with the atheists and the universalists and the world religionists when he gets back. But I want to deal with a couple of other groups of people. First, I would like to deal with non-believers who are floating around on the periphery of belief In many cases, they are looking for a reason to believe because they like what they hear. They like the stories of Jesus. They like the story of the gospel. It's good stuff to them. And really, they want to believe it because it sounds good. But they get stuck when you tell them that Jesus is the only way to heaven. I had a member of my extended family with whom I shared for many, many, many years. Someone who had grown up in a Christian youth group who at one point had considered himself to be a believer, but then later realized his doubts could not overcome his faith and that he didn't believe in the first place. And I shared and shared, and he liked the gospel. He liked what I said. He liked what he heard. And he was ready to believe, but he just got tripped up and he choked on the statement that you come to Jesus because there is no other way to come to God. He said, I just can't say that somebody else is wrong. That's too narrow-minded. Now, it is narrow, but it's not narrow-minded. The other group of people I'd like to encourage would be believers. Some of you in this room may fit this category. You believe in Jesus, you've been born again. You believe you're going to heaven when you die. But when we begin to talk about things like the exclusivity of Jesus that there's no other way in, you want to back up a little and shrink away from the conversation. Because you have been subjected to a constant rant A constant drumbeat in your schools and in your offices and where you work, live and play that says it is not okay to tell somebody else that what they believe is not right. So you're put in this terrible position of saying, I believe in Jesus. He's my savior. He died for me and I've accepted him and I'm going to heaven because of him. But I really don't want to go so far as to say that he's the only way. That's a terrible place to live. And I'm afraid maybe some even in this room are living in that very spot. So what do we do about all this? Well, we could reject Peter's declaration. Why why don't we do that? We could just take what Peter said and delete it from the Scripture. How would that be? Well, I I don't know that we can go there. You know, Peter did get carried away, though. Peter was impetuous. Maybe, Maybe he just went one sentence or one... He didn't know he was talking in verses, by the way. Maybe he said one verse too many that day. He should have stopped while he was ahead. Well, the problem is if we're going to dismiss this statement that Peter made, we're also going to have to deal with something that Jesus said, a verse that maybe was my very first memory verse besides Jesus wept. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That is very, very clear. No one comes to the Father but through me, as is said by Jesus Christ himself. So we dismiss Peter. We have to dismiss Jesus. If we dismiss Jesus, then we have to tear out all 27 books of the New Testament. Do you know why? Listen, because everything in all 27 books of the New Testament is a beautiful tapestry woven together to do one thing, and that is to proclaim what? The exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Nothing else works. The New Testament, including Jesus, including Peter, goes down that road. This claim is the greatest treasure of all. This claim is the most beautiful piece of jewelry that you can imagine. It is the most valuable piece of information that we can ever lay hold of. It is truly a treasure. But some people see it looking for treasure. People looking for treasure. And this hits them square in the face. And they're looking right into the face of the truth that they've been waiting for all their lives. And what do they do? So many people turn and walk away from it because they want to be fair to those who don't believe it. They don't want to assert that they know more than other people. They want to be inclusive. They want to be tolerant. And all this inclusiveness and tolerance leads them down the wrong road. So really... The issue comes down to this. Now, you say, well, is this going to be a course in comparative religion? No. But you could look at Islam. You could look at Buddhism. You could look at Hinduism and, and lots of other isms. And you could put Christianity on the level with them and say, well, this says this. And this one says that. But this one claims that. You know, any, meeny, miny, moe. It's not an eeny, meeny, miny, moe. It's not comparing apples to apples. It's apples and oranges. And if you start at the top... And you begin to compare this one and this one, you're going to miss the point. Where you need to start is with two basic facts. The fact of God and who and what He is and the fact of sin and what it does. What is it about God? Well, God is. God exists. And God is personal. And God is creator. In the beginning, God created. That means He was there before the beginning. In Exodus 3, God told Moses... My name is I Am. So he's personal with a name, and the name I Am implies that he is eternal without beginning and without end. What else about God? The testimony all over the Word is that there is a Creator God who is all-powerful. And do you know what else? The testimony and the evidence also is all over the world. In the Word, we have the testimony. In the world, we have the evidence that the testimony is true. There is a God, and there is one God. The Shema in Deuteronomy 6, the Lord our God is one. The Lord is one. He's also holy. Maybe you haven't opened your Bibles and don't. I'll read this before you can get there. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. Speak to the congregation of the sons of Israel and say, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So the eternal, knowable personal, single God is holy and perfect. And you know what? Most of the people we encounter outside of this building who do not believe in the gospel, they don't dispute these things about God, most of them in our neck of the woods. You go overseas, you'll find people. But largely around here, you're not going to get much pushback on that there's a God and He is one God and He is Almighty and the Creator and He's holy. You won't get much pushback on those points. Our other... Issue that we need to look at is sin. We looked at God first. So let's look at sin now. Romans three twenty three, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Sunday School one oh one. That's Vacation Bible. That's Preschool one oh one. We are all sinners. It's all over the Word, and it's all over the world. We look in Scripture from beginning to end. We see that our sin is a salient feature to our character and our salient problem in this existence. Sin is there cover to cover, and as we look around, we see that it's present in our own lives. It's easy to point out in others, but it's also very easy to see our own imperfections. So the evidence in life validates the testimony of the Word, that sin is pervasive. So on the point of God and the point of sin, who are you really going to find that you're really looking at leading to Christ who's going to dispute that God is real and God is eternal and God is one and God is noble? But that we're all sinners and we all fall short. Not many people seriously will dispute the setup of that problem. And it is a problem. Because when you put these together, the reality of God and the reality of sin, you come up with this big deal, this problem of our separation from the Lord. The relationship is broken. It is beyond repair. The unholy cannot fellowship with the holy. The tainted cannot fellowship with the untainted. The imperfect cannot fellowship with the perfect. We are up the creek, ladies and gentlemen. We have a tremendous problem. Our sin has separated us from God. And it is an eternal problem that cannot be solved by ourselves. So we need to look at the exclusivity of Jesus in this way. Not, we can't let the world frame the question. If you let the world frame the question, they'll say the question is this. Do you really believe That Jesus is the only way to heaven? They'll say, I can't believe it. Why is there only one way? This is how the world frames the question. Why is there only one way? Is there only one? Is Jesus the only way? That's not the question. The question you need to get firmly in your mind and you can can use this to encourage yourself and to help others along. The question is this. In light of our problem, in light of the brokenness, the relationship that is defunct, In light of this eternal issue that we face, is something there that can be done? Can anything help us? Can we get to God somehow? Is there any hope of this problem being solved? We don't focus on there being one way. We ask, is there any way? And if there is, what is it? In other words, in light of our problem, we should be asking, can somebody do something? Well, God did something. Surprise, surprise. God did something. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. So God did something. He sent Jesus. All right, but what good does that do? Jesus came. Uh, he did a lot of things. What, what's the long list of things that Jesus accomplished? He worked miracles. He raised the dead. Those guys still died, by the way. Um, He walked on water. I've said that one already today. He fed 5,000. He taught people about the kingdom of God. That's all good stuff. But is that really what he came to do? What did Jesus come to do as an answer to the problem that God knew we had? Well, before I tell you that, I'd like for you to look with me in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 27 through 30. And as you're looking... John 3, 16 says, Jesus is the Son of God, and that's good enough for me. I'm happy He's the Son of God. That makes me feel good, but you know, I want to ask the question, is Jesus only the Son of God, or is He something more than the Son of God? Is He something beyond the Son of God? John chapter 10, beginning of verse 27. Jesus is speaking. He says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You ready? Verse 30. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one, says Jesus. Let's move over into Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15. Paul wrote, speaking of Jesus... He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Do you know what this is saying? What this is saying is that when God saw our problem and sent Jesus to come deal with it, that what God was doing was rolling up His very own sleeves and coming down here Himself because Jesus Christ is not just the Son of God. Jesus Christ is God. And if He is God, then there's power. There's power in Jesus. His words, yes, but there's more power in something else that I'll show you. What did Jesus, who was God, do when He came to solve our problem? Romans 5.8 you know Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ did what? Christ died for us. So God got all worked up seeing and knowing our problem and deciding to come do something about it in the incarnation of Himself in Jesus Christ. He got here, got all dressed up, and what did He do? Well, He died. That's a fine kettle of fish. My question to you is, What good is a bleeding, dying, dead Jesus to anybody? A lot of good. Let's look at the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a book written especially to explain the tie-in between what Jesus came and did for Jewish believers to understand between the old and the new, what the connection is, particularly regarding the blood sacrifice Hebrews chapter nine, verse twenty-two. Hebrews nine twenty-two is a restatement. It's not the first statement. It's a restatement, a summation of what always, from beginning before the beginning of time, been the rule, the law, the economy of God about the expiation of sin. And what does it say? Verse twenty-two. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This is not a New Testament reality. This is an eternal reality. Something that God declared from before the beginning. His eternal law. It takes blood. It takes sacrifice to cleanse any sin. Sin requires cleansing and cleansing requires blood. Now what about blood? I have blood. You have blood. All God's children got blood. What are we going to do with our blood? My blood happens to be tainted. You know what with? My own sin. My blood is a dog that won't hunt. If I were to try to pay for my sin by writing a check to God payable in units of my blood, the check would be returned marked insufficient funds. My blood can't save me. Your blood can't save you. We need clean blood. We need pure blood. We need holy blood with power. Now, Jesus is God and God is holy. Therefore, Jesus is holy. We know from the beginning to the end of the New Testament, Jesus never sinned. Let's look in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. Now, this is a reference to the blood of bulls and goats. That's tying back into the Old Testament system of sacrifice. But listen with me. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So Jesus' blood was offered and it was accepted because it was clean, undefiled, without blemish. Friends, the holy, precious, shed blood of Jesus is the only hope for humanity to have any of our sins wiped away. To set up an eternal fellowship that we can have with God the Father. It's the only way. Now, we all know that the death of Jesus was not the end of the story. I used to love to tell this story of Jesus to nationals in Asia. They'd never heard the gospel, so you go all through the story, and then you get to the crucifixion, and their faces would drop. And you get to look at him and say, But that's not the end of the story. We all know the Bible teaches in many places the resurrection of Jesus Christ. From the dead. He did not stay dead. And what did his resurrection do? His resurrection proved, first, his power over death, which is some encouragement that I could use every once in a while. Proved his power over death. But secondly, I'd like to suggest, more importantly at this point, the resurrection of Jesus proved his identity as God in the flesh. In other words, his resurrection was a way of him saying, okay, now everything I said, you go back and see what I said, now you can believe it you're going to believe a man that came back from the dead. And so I look at what Jesus did. He predicted he would die. He predicted he would be raised. And he did die, and he was raised. That's the kind of person I'm going to follow. That's the kind of person who, when he says, no man comes to the Father but by me, I'm going to sign on to that. Who else has a contrary or conflicting claim that has said or done anything worthy of consideration? No one. So some folks stumble over Jesus Some look around him and past him, ignoring the treasure that he is, and they're waiting for something better to come along. Kelly and I have a friend in Asia. This is a dear friend, and we uh, worked with her a lot and talked with her a lot. Before we arrived, she had had some exposure to the gospel, but was not anywhere near faith. And so we began to witness to her and share with her And we would tell her the good news of Jesus and how it all works and what it all means. And she would get so close to the edge of belief and she'd say, Oh, I want to believe. I hope it's true. Please tell me it's true again. I'd say, It's true. she said, Oh, I hope it's true. But every time she would come close to the edge of believing, she'd stop and she'd back off. I never really understood what the problem was until finally I think I figured it out. She was very, very, very close to her father. A very close relationship to her father. She was the only daughter and was the apple of his eye. He had doted over her from the moment of her birth until her adulthood. He had worked hard and sacrificed to give her everything she needed, including a college education and a master's degree education. In that part of the world, that is something, ladies and gentlemen. They were very, very close, and she loved him more than anything. And you guess what's going to happen next. He suddenly died. And after he died, she and I did not have a conversation for a long time, but finally the conversation was rekindled, rejoined. And very quickly she got to the point she wanted to ask. He said, "Tell me, according to the Bible, according to Jesus whom you want me to embrace, what has happened to my father?" Well, I'm thinking her thought well. I'm thinking he was somewhere between an animist or a tribal religionist and an atheist. I didn't know how to tell her what was true, but she said it before I could say it. She says, does the Bible say that he's in hell? I gulped, swallowed hard, and I said, the Bible says that those who die without a saving relationship in Jesus Christ live eternally separated from God in a place of torment and suffering. Her face clouded up, turned red. She began to cry began to shake. And I was saying, Lord, I'm not sure what to do here. Then she said, well, if Albert... if..." If embracing Jesus and believing what you say is true, is what I'm to do, that I will go to heaven and be with God forever, then I think, because I love my Father so much, that I would rather die and go to hell and be with my Father forever. Talk about having your socks knocked off. I just had someone look at me and say, I would rather go to hell. Now, the Spirit prompted me with these questions. I said to her, Your father loves you with all of his heart, doesn't he? Yes. Your father always sacrificed to give you the best in life, didn't he? Oh, yes, yes. Your father adores you, doesn't he? Oh, yes, yes, he does. He wants the best for you now, doesn't he? Yes, yes, he does. And then I said, well, consider now the situation that the Bible says your father is in. If he could say something to you right now, what would he say to you about this conversation? She thought... She looked down, she cleared her throat, and she said, My father would tell me to go to Jesus. A few months later, she did. She went to Jesus, and she's our sister. Many of you know Jesus. You're saved. You've been with him for a lot of years, some of you. You got over the whole thing about him being the only way because you're just happy there is a way and you found it and I'm right there with you. You're secure in that. And if that is descriptive of you, where you are right now, then I would say to you, go and tell somebody. Go and tell somebody. You have the the most shocking, the most liberating, the most important news of all eternity. Go use it. Go tell it to somebody who's waiting and looking for that treasure to come along. They just haven't seen yet. Others of you believe, but you waver a little bit. You don't want to be like those people that you know at the other end of the pew who take this stuff just a little bit too seriously. You know, I'm willing to say I believe in Jesus and everything, but I'm not willing to say to somebody else, well, I'm sorry, you're wrong. That leaves you in a very awkward position. And because the blood of Jesus has come, And it is the perfect payment for your sin. And there is no other way for the sin to be removed. I want to encourage you let go of your doubts, let go of your reservations, recommit yourself to following Him all the way, and confess to Him in prayer Lord Jesus, I know you're the only hope I have. You're the only way. Clear that problem up, and you watch what God will do in your life to grow you and to use you in the kingdom. There are still others. Who are on the outside looking in. And you just don't really know what you think about Jesus. You don't want to buy into this, he's the only way business, but I'm going to make a statement here that that I want everybody to pay close attention to. If you want to believe in a Jesus who is not the only way to be made right with God, if you want to believe in a Jesus who is not the only way to be reconciled to a holy God and go to heaven, then, my friend, you are looking for and you want to believe in a Jesus who is powerless to save you from your sins. With Jesus, friends, it's all or nothing. Some of you say, well, I'm comparing Jesus with other and other things and I'll get back to you later. Well, let the comparison begin if you must, but let the Spirit speak to you if you will. It's not a matter of choosing Jesus as the first among equals. Because there is no equal. I want you to come claim your treasure with this verse ringing in your ears. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and he sold all that he had and he bought it. You may need to do something today about what you've heard. If you do, I hope you will not hesitate. We're going to stand together. The choir is going to sing. There will be ministers at the front of the sanctuary to receive you. I want to invite you to stand together now. And you respond to what the Spirit has asked you to do.